I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 41:21 through 42:17. The consolation of Israel began with the famous introduction of chapter 40, Comfort, O comfort my people. The section later ended with three images of a weak, downtrodden Israel rescued, cared for, and restored by God. God's care might begin with Israel. It does not end with Israel. The purpose of the nation Israel, going all the way back to the call of Abraham, was to bless the nations. Israel was to be God's servant, a nation of priests who displayed the glory of God in their lives and who helped others come to know God. In this next section, we see his consolation extended out to all peoples. There are three divisions to this section. 41, 21 to 29 is a court scene that exposes the plight of the nations. 42, 1 through 9 introduces God's servant as the only solution for humanity's plight. And 42, 10 to 17 concludes with a song of joy in the Lord. The initial court scene begins looking more like judgment than comfort. That's sometimes the problem with good news. It doesn't sound like good news when it uncovers foundational beliefs as being dark and sinister. When you say to people, you are clinging to death in order to make sense out of your life, they may not thank you for that insight. To let go of the life raft only makes sense when you see and accept the truth that the raft is actually carrying you towards certain death. And even then, it might not be easy to let go of that security. Whatever we've chosen as a replacement for the provision, security, and life that God offers, whether it's relationship, position, achievement, or cultural religion, those things are idols. Whatever gives us identity, control, or purpose, apart from the life God offers, it's an idol. If our idols can be exposed as false, if we can acknowledge that we're clinging to death and corruption, then we might be willing to listen to a different message. That's why this section of consolation starts with the bad news. Isaiah intends to remove false hopes so that the good message of consolation might be heard and received as good. He does that by putting the gods of the nations on trial. 41, 21 to 29. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? or from former times that we might say, he is right. Surely there's no one who declared. Surely there is no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one. And there's no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. 
Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. This is another clear attack on idolatry. Isaiah's constant leaking of terms and themes between prophetic passages makes it challenging to identify where one prophetic section ends and another begins, and challenging to recognize the new information being communicated in passages with themes we've already touched on. Back in 41.1, the Gentiles had been invited to listen to God. That was followed by a reference to Israel as God's servant in 41.8. Now here in 41.21, we start with an invitation for the Gentiles to present a case before God, which will be followed in 42.1 with a reference to a servant. The shared terms link the passages together like a puzzle piece. At the same time, the linked pieces are revealing two different invitations and two different kinds of servant. The two images might be side by side in the same puzzle, linked together by connecting pieces, But they're two different images in the larger picture. They really do show us two different kinds of invitation and two different kinds of servant. This invitation is a summons to court. The pagan gods are on trial. The summons is presented in the name of Yahweh and in the name of the king of Jacob. This is the only time the designation king of Jacob appears in the entire Bible. I think Isaiah uses Jacob here as he has done in other passages to clarify that we're not talking about a king from the northern kingdom Israel, we are talking about the king of God's covenant people. Using the name Jacob makes that clear. This is all of God's covenant people. The right human authority over the unified people of God is calling the nations to trial. The prosecution makes a challenge to the Gentile nations to bring out their gods and put them to a test. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. The gods are challenged in their interpretation of the past and their knowledge of the future. They are challenged to look back in history at events that have already happened and to explain those events and explain what the outcome of those events will be. Explain history. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Then they're challenged to look ahead in time and declare events that will be in the future. Declare the things that are going to come afterward. The charge ends with a challenge to just do anything. Indeed, do good or evil. Just do something that might cause us to believe you are real, that we might have some kind of anxiety and fear, that some sense that you affect the world. Isaiah expects no response from the idols. Nothing from Baal of Tyre or Dagon of Philistia or Chemosh of Moab or Marduk of Babylon or Asher of Assyria or Ra of Egypt. He expects no response. Nothing from Anath, Inanna, Ishtar, or Isis. The court of God finds the pagan idol gods impotent, guilty of deceiving the nations. Behold, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. 
And notice that the choice of false gods is not only an unfortunate error, it's an abomination. People are held accountable for rejecting God as the true source of goodness, turning away from him and ascribing his goodness, truth, and beauty to that which is actually evil, false, and corrupt. After the challenge to the idol gods, God declares his own ability to do what they cannot. He proclaims a coming invasion, and he says he will cause it to happen. He speaks of the future with such certainty that it's translated here as a completed past event. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads the clay. There are numerous prophecies in Isaiah that can serve as proof of God's sovereignty over history. The example given at the end of the book of the king involved one who rose in the north. God said Sennacherib would come from the north, that he would invade Judah, and that he would be turned back without conquering Jerusalem. That prophecy took place in the time of Isaiah's audience. They heard for themselves from the mouth of Isaiah the proclamation of what would happen, and afterward they saw themselves that the word of God communicated through Isaiah happened just as he had proclaimed. Sennacherib is not the king mentioned here in verse 25. This one will arouse from the north in the future. The fulfillment of the prophecy about Sennacherib served as a proof to encourage belief in this prophecy that's going to occur some 150 years later. Israel will go into exile. They need to know that God plans to bring them out. They need to know God is in control of history. Just as God raised up Sennacherib from the north in their lifetime, so also he would raise up Cyrus in the north in a future generation. After the exile, God will bring about deliverance. This is a brief reference to Cyrus. We're going to get more detail in chapters 44 and 45. So God demonstrates that he can cause future events to happen with certainty. He claims sovereignty over history. Now he asks, is there any other Lord of history? Is there any other God? in whom it is valid to trust. Where is he? Show him to me. Verses 26 to 29. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? Or from former times that we might say, he's right. Surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one and there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? Behold, all of them are false, their works are worthless, their molten images are wind and emptiness. That's the conclusion of the Lord's court. This is God's view of other gods and other religions. Behold, all of them are false, their works are worthless, their molten images are wind and emptiness. There is a particular charge here that goes deeper than we might notice especially if we're coming from a Western worldview that assumes history is linear, moving from a beginning to an end, from Genesis to Revelation. The linear nature of history is apparent in the biblical narrative, but that belief in a linear history was not the norm in the ancient Near East. The nations around Israel held to a cyclical view of history. The ball cycle is an example of the cyclical view. Our knowledge of the ball cycle comes from the archaeological discovery in the 1920s of the city Ugarit, which was located on the Mediterranean coast north of Tyre and Sidon. The city had been destroyed before the time of King David during the period of the judges, you know, some 
1,200 years before Jesus. The discovery of Ugarit uncovered hundreds of clay tablets, including several tablets describing a mythology of Baal, a form of which Elijah contended with during his ministry. In the Baal cycle, the storm god Baal became angry at the sea serpent Leviathan and killed it. This angered Mot, the god of death. Mot defeated Baal and took him down to his underworld kingdom. Baal's sister and lover, Anath, goddess of fertility and motherhood, showed that she was no one to be messed with. She went down to the underworld and cleaved Mot with a sword, winnowed him with a fan, burned him with fire, ground him in a handmill, sowed him in the ground, and let birds eat what was left. Thus she rescued Baal and brought him back up from the kingdom of death. This cycle recurred every year. Baal was the storm god. His imprisonment by Mot every year explained the dry season. So when Baal was in the underworld, there was no rain. When Anath rescued Baal, the rains came again. And even the imagery of Anath uh, grinding Mot up, it's almost like she seeds him into the ground. She sows him. That's part of this picture of the fertility that's going to come after the Reese of Baal and the death of Mont. John Oswalt explains with much greater insight how the view of history presented here by Isaiah challenges the more predominant view of history assumed by the Gentile nations. I'm just going to go ahead and read two paragraphs from Oswalt because I think it's much better to hear this from an expert. This is Oswalt. The pagan understanding of existence rests on the concept of continuity. According to this concept, everything that exists is part of everything else. Thus, humanity, nature, and deity are all inseparable from one another. In an ultimate sense, the cosmos is eternal. What is always has been and what has been always will be. In the cycles of existence, there is no beginning and no end and nothing ever changes. Thus, the way to tell the future in such a system is to find the ways in which the present is congruent with the past, for what happened in the past under similar circumstances must happen again. But the gods are absolutely helpless to tell us how the world began or how it will end. The gods are the system personified. By the same token, they are helpless to tell us about something that has never happened before. First, by definition, there cannot be such a thing. Second, the system cannot know what it has not yet experienced. Thus, Isaiah's attack betrays a penetrating understanding of the nature of the system he is attacking. He has attacked it precisely at its weak point. His attack also illustrates the breathtaking difference between his, and the Bible's, conception of God and that of Israel's neighbors. What kind of God is he who knows what has not happened? What kind of God is he who can explain the first principles of existence? He is one who is other than the system, one who has made the system according to certain specifications, one who makes the system operate according to his sovereign will. He is the one who is himself the first and the last. Now see Isaiah 41.4, 44.6, and 41.22. Isaiah says in effect that anything worthy of the term God must be more than the system itself. Since these beings are incapable of independent activity, they are not gods. This is philosophical sophistication of a sort found elsewhere only in the logical reductionism of Aristotle's unmoved mover. 
But there it is a little more than an abstract formulation that was little more than a philosophical concept. Here it is the fervently held conviction of a whole people, a conviction that was to change the entire Western world. Whence came such a belief except as the Hebrews insist through divine self-revelation? That was Oswald. The challenge made here confronts the idol gods of the nations directly and at the same time undermines the presuppositions Gentiles hold regarding time itself. Their worldview is found wanting and dangerous. The world is broken. People are broken. We need help. The gods are not real. They're part of the broken system. They cannot help. History is not cyclical. There is a beginning. We are moving towards an end. Human beings are not in an unending, inescapable cycle. Now, having exposed the false help of the gods, Isaiah points next to the true remedy of human sin and need. God's servant will establish justice on earth, 42, 1 through 9. This is the first of our four servant songs in the book of the servant. The song is actually verses 42, 1 through 4, and then we get a confirmation by God in 5 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlines will wait expectantly for his law. Now the confirmation of the servant from God, 5 through 9. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and I will watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. All four servant songs have the same pattern. The actual song describes the servant's task. That song is followed with God's confirmation of his servant. If you want to look ahead to compare, the second servant song is 49, 1-6 to with a confirmation in 7-13. to the third servant song is 54 to 9 with a confirmation in 10 to 11. And the fourth most famous servant song is in 52, 13 to 53, 12 with a confirmation in 54, 1 to 55, 13. Who is the servant? We've already encountered Israel as God's servant in 41, 8. We will continue to see Israel regularly designated as God's servant by Isaiah. We've also already alluded twice to an important figure who will arise in the east and in the north. He will be identified as Cyrus in 44.28 and 45.1, where he will also be called God's shepherd and God's anointed. He will not be directly identified as God's servant, but since he's called God's anointed, which is the word Messiah, 
we have to consider him as an option when we read the servant songs. I'm not saying he is the Messiah. The word anointed meant king. It indicates God's choice as one he has appointed. Cyrus was an anointed one. He was not the anointed one described in chapters 1 to 39, the book of the king. That anointed one is the son of David, and he is divine. He's our third option for the servant songs. Is this Israel? Is this Cyrus? Or is this the divine son of David described in the book of the king? Let's read verses 1 to 4 again and see if the text gives away the identity of the servant. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Could this servant be Cyrus? No. That would be a very difficult connection to support. Though Cyrus is chosen by God, the language used for Cyrus in chapters 44 and 45 does not support the idea of God delighting in Cyrus. And though Cyrus is called the anointed of God, the phrase, putting my spirit upon him, seems to carry the idea of anointing Cyrus as a victorious king too far. And though Cyrus does execute God's righteous justice on earth by defeating Israel's enemies and allowing the return of exiles to Jerusalem, this seems to fall short of justice to the nations and establishing justice on earth, a justice that leads Gentiles to yearn for God's law. I'll come back to the language of spirit and justice in a minute. The clearest objection to this servant being Cyrus has to do with the means by which Cyrus brings about justice of God. Isaiah 45, 2 says that God will go before Cyrus to shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. That's an image of violent military defeat of an enemy. Cyrus will enter into palace and temple to take spoil. That justice is accomplished through active wrath, but the servant in this passage accomplishes justice through calm gentleness. He does not cry out in the street. He does not damage an already bruised reed. The initial means by which this servant establishes justice will be very different from that of a conquering king. This servant is not Cyrus. Though Cyrus might in some way foreshadow this servant. Could the servant be Israel? That's a more possible connection to make. Isaiah clearly identifies Israel as God's servant elsewhere, using the singular to do so. Isaiah writes, Israel my servant, not Israel my servants. So the singular works here for Israel. Israel is God's chosen people, and God does delight in his people. Moses wrote that God set his affection on them, Deuteronomy 10.15 has God put his spirit on Israel? That's not so clear. But if we're looking ahead, we could read that as a prophecy of the pouring out of God's spirit on God's people, just as we find in Joel 2.28. Also, God could use Israel to bring forth justice to the nations, and it could be Israel's role to do so through calm gentleness, not through war. Finally, Isaiah has already written way back in chapter 2 of Gentiles streaming into Zion to receive the law of the Lord. That fits the conclusion of this servant song. So if we take as our key piece of evidence the references to Israel as God's servant here in the book of the servant, we could imagine a way for the rest of the imagery to fit Israel as this servant. 
that approach would be assuming this is Israel and making the pieces fit. But if we don't assume this is Israel and we consider the language of the song according to how the language has been used in Isaiah, we'll find that Israel doesn't match up the best with what we have here. As God's servant, Isaiah describes Israel as weak or blind or rebellious. Perhaps they were intended, they were meant to draw the nations into the justice and knowledge of God, but we don't see them doing that. We don't see the covenant people solving the dilemma of human sin and injustice. Another figure, already described in Isaiah, does match the language of this song. We need to look back to the ideal king in the book of the king, particularly in chapters 9 and 11. Here in 42.1, God says he put his spirit on his chosen servant. Back in 11.2, Isaiah said about the Messianic son of David, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. We were told in 11.10 that the nations will resort to this root of Jesse, matching the claim here that the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. We are also told in 11.9 that the earth will be full of his knowledge, and here in 42.4 that he will establish justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The idea in 42.4 that the servant will continue on until he has established justice in the earth, connects us back to chapter 9. The divine son of David in 9.6-7, whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, is also the one who will rule over David's kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Let me summarize all that. The messianic king of Isaiah 9 and 11 has the spirit of the Lord on him, blesses the nations, brings the nations to the knowledge of God, and establishes justice on earth. The servant of Isaiah 42, 1-4, has the spirit of the Lord on him, blesses the nations, brings the nations to the knowledge of God's law, and establishes justice on earth. The book of the king points to our need for a new kind of king. Israel's kings are to aspire to the qualities of the ideal king, but they cannot attain that ideal. So too, all of God's people should aspire to the qualities of the ideal servant, even though they cannot attain to that ideal. Just as the book of the king points to our need for a new kind of king, so too the book of the servant points to our need for a new kind of servant. Israel cannot attain justice for herself, much less for the world. Are the messianic king and the servant the same person? Jewish interpretation varied. Some interpreters before Christ identified the servant as Israel. Even so, Craig Blomberg notes in his commentary on Matthew that 200 years before the birth of Jesus, Targum Jonathan, a translation from Hebrew to Aramaic, identifies the servant of Isaiah 42.1 with the Messiah, the individual person, the son of David. It was a definite option considered by Jewish scholars who tried to interpret Isaiah. Early Christians had no doubt about the identification of the servant. Matthew quotes this whole servant song in Matthew 12, 18 to 21 as a description of Jesus. It's the longest direct quote of the Old Testament in Matthew, and Matthew likes to quote the Old Testament. He had just written about Jesus doing a healing on the Sabbath that angered people in the synagogue. Pharisees go out from Jesus and plot how to destroy him, while even bigger crowds come to Jesus for more healing. Jesus heals them, 
and warns them not to tell who he was. Matthew seems to be making two connections with this particular servant song. Jesus responded to those who challenged him, but he did not engage in shouting matches. We have no record of him delivering the ranting speeches of a zealot. He even cautioned people from speaking about him. As Isaiah 42.2 says, he will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. That picture does not prevent Jesus from teaching as he stands in a boat or as he sits on a mountainside or as he walks in a street. He does speak with a voice loud enough to hear, but he is not crying out as a conquering general or a zealot leader. He conducts his ministry with calm, confident persistence. What's more, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. That's not a picture of force or violence. It's true that Jesus will return as the Lion of Judah. He is also king and conqueror. But the cross must come before the crown. The lamb before the lion. We're probably so used to Isaiah's poetic imagery of a bruised reed that we hardly think about it. But it is original to Isaiah. And it's a wonderful image. It wonderfully expresses fragility. How easy to break a reed, even more an already bruised reed. How easy is it to snuff out the wick of a a lamp? And how much more one that hardly has any oil that's barely flickering? It's dim. You just touch it with your fingers and it's gone. But we look at Jesus and we see his joy of children scrambling up on his lap. His healing of the man with the withered hand who happened to come to him on a Sabbath. His invitation to a woman facing her seventh husband, not even her husband. His acceptance of another woman caught in prostitution. His respect towards a diminutive tax collector hanging from a tree. All people he could easily bruise or snuff out. Jesus expressed the gentle compassion Isaiah describes here. With you and with me, Jesus did not come to break. He comes to heal. He did not come to extinguish. He comes to ignite. Jesus conducts his entire ministry with a strong meekness. So much so that we are rightly surprised at the exceptional times when he does speak harshly in tough love or when he judges the hypocrisy of religious leadership that imprison people in the name of salvation. And we're surprised because it's not at all that Jesus we're used to, but it's there. We're reminded of how strong and righteous Jesus is. Jesus stared down the false idols of traditional legalistic religion and gave himself up to save humankind. He's a new kind of servant, a king who comes to serve. And by serving even unto death, he established justice for all the peoples of the earth. He is the fulfillment of this passage. And we don't see in this particular song that the servant is going to suffer. That's coming in the following songs. But Matthew knew that when he identified Jesus with this first song. Back to Isaiah, God confirms this servant in the next five verses. Verse five establishes that it is now God speaking. It also establishes clearly what God we're talking about. Thus says Elohim Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The Lord God, who is creator of all things and all people, the source of life, he says of his servant in verses six and seven, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. 
I will also hold you by the hand and I will watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Through whom does God establish a new kind of covenant that applies to the people of all nations? Through Jesus. Who opens blind eyes and brings prisoners out of their darkness? Jesus. Jesus is God's solution to a world imprisoned in the darkness of false hopes, false gods, and false solutions. God will not yield to imposters. He is the center of reality. He is the definition of all that is good and beautiful and true. He is the source, and he will not deny who he is. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. For God to call good and glorious that which is not him would be wickedness. It is right for us to give God all glory and proclaim him as truth. It is right for God to give himself all glory and to proclaim himself beautiful and true. God will not leave us to our vain redefinitions of reality. We give glory to that which is not glorious. We're the ones who call what is ugly beautiful, what is false true, and what is wicked good. God will not give up his glory. For his sake he will not, and for our sakes he will not. In this proclamation, a new kind of servant who will come to establish justice for all peoples, God meets the challenge he set for the idols. Verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. He proclaimed to Israel that one would come from the north to rescue them from exile. They would dwell in Jerusalem again. More importantly, he declares the coming of a servant who will establish justice. Something new is coming. Someone new. Through him, we will see the glory of God. Now, the right response to the good news of the servant song is to turn from the things that we worship instead of God back to God, who is the right object of our worship. The right response is to sing. Isaiah gives us a new song in 42, 10 to 17. This is the conclusion of God's consolation to the Gentiles. The plight of idolatrous rebellion was followed by the solution of a servant who would establish justice in compassion. That solution is followed by a new song. The song is divided into two parts. The first is a call to sing. The second is the basis for singing. The call to sing is in 10 to 11. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and those who dwell on them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The invitation to sing goes out from Israel to the end of the earth, to the sea, to the islands, to the wilderness, to the mountains, including Kedar of the Arabian Peninsula, and Selah of Edom. The enemies of Israel are invited to sing. And not just to sing. To sing, to praise, to lift up, to shout for joy, to glory in Yahweh, and declare his praise. Turn to God.
the basis for singing that we're getting ready to, to look at brings up the tension of God working through a conqueror who will demolish and God working through a servant who will not break the bruised reed. That tension exists throughout the book of Isaiah. It is one of the major themes. It's represented in our title for this series, King, Servant, Conqueror. Our three divisions for Isaiah. The book of the king established the Messiah as king. We understand the image of king as also conqueror. We're beginning to get a glimpse that this king is also a servant. The Messiah will be both. He will be lion and lamb. That tension is not explained here. It will come into greater focus as we encounter the other servant songs. For now, it's enough to recognize the tension. The new song follows revelation about a compassionate servant and is grounded in God's active destruction of evil. That basis for the new song comes in our final verses, 42, 13 to 17. We start in verse 13 by speaking of God in third person. We end in verse 17 by speaking of idols in third person. In between, we hear from God himself in first person as he declares the deliverance he will provide. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. The servant may not cry out, but God will shout. He will shout like a woman about to give labor. There will be silence in the pain, and then suddenly we will hear the cry. God comparing himself to a woman in labor is certainly a surprising analogy. Let's just accept this is the revealed word of God. So this is Isaiah speaking the image God has given him, and God has given Isaiah an image of himself as a woman in labor. Jesus will use the same analogy in slightly different way. I know it occurs in different places, but John 16 is one. It's an illustration that everybody can get. Births have happened at home for in most places through most of time. Everybody's familiar with the silent activity that is suddenly punctuated by loud cries and then followed by new life. God's cries will precede his wrath against those who have enslaved his people. He will then lead his people, not a strong, good seeing people, but a blind people who do not know and cannot see. God will lead them to light. He had challenged idols earlier just to do something, good or evil, do something. They could not. God assures us that he will accomplish his salvation. There may be a long silence leading up to the time of deliverance, but when it is time to come, it will come. God promises, these are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. He's not like the idols who do nothing. 
He promises he will act. It may be that we're supposed to understand a linear sequence through this passage that nations are judged for turning from God to false idols. The servant steps in to accomplish justice in a manner that is faithful and gentle. After the servant establishes justice for the world, covering God's people, inviting, drawing God's people in, God will finally conquer all evil. The song concludes by bringing us back to where we started. The hopeless shamefulness of turning from God to false idols that cannot cover our sin, cannot protect us from harm, and cannot fill our hearts. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the book of Acts.